0: Um, I don't know about y'all, but I've always been fascinated with like I would love to just be able to walk around underneath the ocean. Give me give me a, a hand, a raise a raise a hand if if the options are you could explore space or you could explore the ocean. Which would you choose? Raise your hand for space. Okay. Raise your hand for ocean. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty split. Anyway, okay. Back to this. Just curious. So um, I actually read the first, I think it was the first book that he ever wrote. It's called The Silent World, and he talks about just the incredible, unbelievable majesty of this whole world that exists under the surface of the water that until very recently and until like what was happening through he and his co-workers and co-creators uh, and co-explorers that like this was largely unknown to us. And as he's writing in this, this book, The Silent World, he talks about becoming a manfish. fish. That's, that's how he talks about it. It's like being in this diving suit is, is like giving him this new ability to explore this whole new world. And one of, his, uh, one of the things he says about getting to experience this for the first time as he says, at night, I had often had visions of flying by extending my arms as wings. And now I flew without wings, and I didn't have to dream anymore. And so where we're going with this is uh, we're, we're in this series now, uh, going through the book of Matthew. We're looking at Jesus, this is good news, great king. Um, who is this Jesus? What has he come to do? And one of the things that he has come to do um, is, is like Jacques Cousteau talking about the ocean and this whole new world. Um, he has come to make a whole new world accessible to us. And, and like becoming a manfish, he has come so that a new humanity is accessible to us. And so whoever's reading our passage, if you would come on up. Um, we are going to be in Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11. Oh no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and then verse 17.
1: Um, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to to become loaves of bread. But he answered them, It is written... Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord, your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him from that time. Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Father, we are here gathered in your presence, and you are awesome. You are full of glory. You are beyond our understanding, and yet you have made yourself known to us. Through your son Jesus, you've come and put on flesh so that we could know you, so that we could be redeemed and experience new life in you for all eternity, and that we could have life abundant. And Father, we are incapable of knowing you apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. You've given us clues all throughout creation. You've given us your word. And because of the effects of sin, we are cold and dead and incapable of knowing you apart from your redeeming, empowering work. And so I pray that you would come right now, that you would come and work in all of our hearts to open our eyes, open our minds, Open our hearts, that you would enable us to know you, and that you would change our affections to desire you above all else, that you would change our wills to just want whatever you want. And as as you have given me the precious gift this week of knowing you more deeply and more rightly in this passage this week, I'm very aware of my limitations and my frailties and my inability (laughs) and my own power to convey even the tiniest amount of your goodness and your glory this morning. And so I pray that you would come and work through your Holy Spirit and that you would speak to all of our hearts, mine included, and, and tell us about yourself in ways that we need to hear and that you would not leave us unchanged. And I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so this passage, if you were with us last week, we read about Jesus being baptized, and, and he, was, he was baptized, and he sees the Spirit of the Lord coming to rest on him. And he hears a voice from heaven say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And, and so then it's kind of jarring to go directly from that into this passage, and it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, that same Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You think, what is happening? If God loves him, why is he allowing him to be led into the wilderness, this desolate place, to be tempted by the devil? Well, part of what was happening in the the baptism of Jesus is he was being prepared and being consecrated for his ministry as our great high priest. But another thing that was happening was he was redeeming humanity and ushering in a new humanity through this recapitulation of the very first temptation of the very first son of God, Adam, in the garden. We read in Genesis 2 this, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So just to stop there, this relationship that God had with Adam in the garden, God did not have to create Adam. God created Adam out of the abundance of his goodness, out of the abundance of his love and wanting to share that love and give life to another creature and a whole race of creatures, a whole universe of creatures, but uniquely to man. And so God creates this amazing, beautiful world that is untainted by anything foul, anything wicked, anything sick or diseased. And then he creates this very special place in this already beautiful, amazing world, the Garden of Eden, where everything, not only necessary for Adam and and then Eve uh, later to have life, but to flourish But also in abundance. It's not just surviving, it's flourishing. And it's not just flourishing, it's flourishing to the nth degree. And this is where Adam found himself. And so when God gives him this command, you may eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree, it's all yours. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. There was nothing inherent in that tree that would be readily observable to Adam that oh yeah I need to stay away from this tree it's not like all the other trees were beautiful and then this tree was like covered in skull and crossbones and had you know blood dripping off of it or or some creepy thing it was just another tree that also looked beautiful I'm sure just like all the rest and so what Adam had to do in that moment was he was faced with this decision Do I remain in right relationship with my creator and my father? Because it's clear from scripture that Adam is called the son of God. God created Adam out of love. He is the son of God. Do I live by faith? Or do I live by sight? Is my loving father who has given me everything I need, my only experience of life and existence, is knowing that this God is good, and that he loves me. And so when he tells me something, hey, you can have all of this, just don't eat from this tree, or you will surely die. Do I continue in this healthy relationship I have with my father, and say, yes, that is truth, and that is what directs my path, and my will, and my understanding of the world around me, or Do I then have to see for myself and have to decide for myself, and am I the arbiter of truth, and am I the one who will weigh everything and then decide what is best, and I will go in the direction that I think is best? And that, I mean, from the very beginning, it's always been a call to the people of God to live by faith, to live by faith in the God who is good, the God who is for our flourishing, that his glory is tied up in our flourishing and in our life. And we know how that ended. And so here is Jesus again, as as scripture calls him, the second Adam, the new man, the one who has come to redeem humanity, is coming to be tempted and tested by the enemy, just like Adam was in the garden except our Jesus, it looked a little different for him. Adam was surrounded by everything he needed in this beautiful place, untainted by sin. Jesus is all alone in a desolate wilderness in this land that has become riddled with the effects of sin. And here he is. It says in verse 2, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, So clearly, this is not an idea that Jesus had. Um, The Lord, his Father, spoke to him and called him to go out to this place. He was led by the Holy Spirit not only to be in this desolate wilderness, but also to fast, to go without food for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was hungry. And y'all, I want to tell you something. Jesus is the Son of God, And he was also a son of man. It's very important that that we know that Jesus has two natures. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And something that preparing for this sermon and meditating on this passage and being in prayer this week revealed to me, convicted me of, is it is much easier on this side of everything for me to believe that Jesus is fully God than it is for me to believe that he's fully man. And I don't know about y'all, but... (laughs) Until this week, I have read passages like this, and they have not had the encouraging effect that they are intended to have because I thought, oh, yeah, of course you fasted for 40 days because you're God. Of course this was easy for you because you're God, but I'm not. And something that the Lord made very clear to me through the writings of people much wiser than I and through different places in his word and just the speaking of his Holy Spirit is Jesus is fully man too. And none of his fully godness helped him in this time. He had to deal with everything the same way that we do. And the only difference is that he was without sin. What is empowering him is the empowering work of the Holy Spirit that is also available to us through him. But something that the Lord just made very clear to me is that Jesus was fully man. He was out here in the wilderness on our behalf, being obedient to the Father, hungry, maybe on the very edge of starvation. He has the same desires, the same needs, the same nature, the same limits as us, yet he was without sin. That is the only difference. He was fasting, and he was hungry, and it was important that he was not just the Son of God, but that he was the Son of Man, because he had to be human to redeem humanity. Galatians 4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, when the time was right, God sent forth his Son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law. We are all under the law of God as humanity, and he is just like us because he is human, to, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. So here is our Jesus in the desolate wilderness being obedient to his father to take part in this fast for 40 days and 40 nights, to be out here to be tempted by the evil one, by the tempter. And so in verse three, here he comes. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God... just like the garden, casting doubt. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. There's nothing illegal about that. There's nothing sinful about that. Surely it means something to be God's son, and and you don't have to just starve to death out here. It's not like you're calling down a, a... royalty and and all of this luxury we're talking about the necessities of life bread and god's not going to let you use your powers to give yourself bread who are you like what does it mean to be a son of god if you can't even do that and who is he is he not good is he not powerful is he not loving it's just like what he said in the garden to tempt adam And Eve, the serpent said to the woman, this is Genesis 3, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden, uh, eat of any tree in the garden? And he said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation then and the temptation here and the temptation here always is to leave faithful loving submission to our good father who has never wronged us and has always been faithful and to go be our own gods and to go decide for ourselves and to go wear that mantle for ourselves and be like God and you know and maybe in a certain way the enemy was right Adam and Eve were more like God in a certain way but it was not in a way that was helpful it only brought destruction and death As one uh, commentator put it, the enemy insinuates that God is incredibly uncaring about human needs and hostile to human progress. Do we hear that today? Insinuating that God is incredibly uncaring about human needs. If you really love me, you would. And hostile to human progress if only we could be done with this whole idea of God, then man, then humanity could finally elevate to this place where we belong. And we see how that's working out. That is a lie straight from the serpent's mouth. What about us? You know, I was reflecting on this, the ways that the enemy comes to us, the way that we hear this temptation in our own thoughts and in our own hearts and in our own desires. And the two areas I thought of that, that probably we are tempted with most above all else is sex and money. You think about, I think about the echoes of what I'm hearing about human sexuality and it sounds a lot like this. Yeah, surely... God would want you to be happy. Surely, right? Like surely, I mean, sex is one of the most basic human needs. And he doesn't want your needs fulfilled? Well, what kind of God is that? Is he for humanity or is he against humanity? And we have all sorts of new definitions And and new descriptions and pictures of what it is to be sexually healthy that have nothing to do with the word of God. And brothers and sisters who are dealing with same-sex attraction are fighting like on two fronts here. Like, surely, surely God wouldn't want this life for you. Surely he would want all of your needs to be fulfilled. And, and everyone outside of the bounds of marriage, surely you have to know what it's like to live with somebody and have sex with somebody before you're married. Like how can you even know that that person is right for you without that? And we're just thrown into this turmoil. And money. We are slaves to our work. We are slaves to our work. So many of us, we worship at the foot of our employer. No matter how many hours you tell me to work, I'll do it because I have to, I have to advance and I have to make more money or else what am I going to do? You see how expensive it is to live here. No one will provide for me. And God would want me to be comfortable, right? Like, this is life. Like, he would want me to have these things, right? Surely, and surely then, I know this isn't good, but just for a few years, just for a few years, I'll, I'll just sell my soul and everything I have that makes me look human, and I will become a cog in this machine, and I will give everything I have to this work. And thank you, Lord, that Jesus, the king of the universe, died a penniless virgin. Because now we can trust him. Jesus is like, look, I know where life is. I am life. And let me just tell you, it's not in these things. These things can be good gifts from God, but any time they are pitted against his word and his will for us, they bring death. God can choose in his benevolence and his wisdom to give me a spouse and allow me to have sex the way that he has designed it to be or not. And for Jesus, the answer was or not because we are his spouse. And he was waiting and he was completely content in that. He was completely content in the love of the Father and the love that he had for his people. And he did not need certain luxury, certain comfort, certain security to be okay. He had nothing. He did not have a home. And I'm upset because my home is not as comfortable as I want it to be. And he's saying, look, I am the only one who has come from above. I'm the only one who knows what life is. And I'm telling you, you can have it without this. Because God is faithful and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Do I know what I need better than my creator and father? Because y'all, Jesus didn't. Jesus did not. When he felt hungry, when he felt urges, he wasn't depending on those to tell him what he needed to do next. He was depending on the word of his father. I feel this, but what do you say? And I can trust you. And he did. He entrusted himself completely every day of his life to his heavenly father. And so what does he do? How does he respond to the tempter? Verse 4, he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying, look, forget money and sex, not even bread. Not even food is my greatest need in this moment where I'm at the brink of starvation. My greatest need at this moment and every other moment of my life while I draw breath is the Father, is a relationship with him. And so if he tells me to come out here into the wilderness and fast for 40 days and 40 nights, I'm going to do that. And I'm gonna trust that that's where life is. And I am gonna forego bread until he tells me it's time for me to have bread again. Because man does not live by bread alone. And, And whether we've put the pieces together and connected those dots consciously, we know that. Don't we? When I run after bread, when I run after sex, when I run after money, when I run after every desire that I have that does not come into submission to the God of the universe, It does not fulfill. It never has. It never will. And Jesus is saying, hey, this is wild. I know this is wild because all you've ever known is slavery in the kingdom of darkness, where you have to have all these comforts in order to be okay. And I'm coming from a new kingdom. And I am telling you the way that it was before sin and the way it's going to be after sin. And I'm telling you that this is not where life is. That life is found in the Father alone. And just like Adam, Jesus did not necessarily know why it had to be exactly like this. Why he found himself 40 days without food in the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. He might have known big picture and broad brush, but I doubt he knew exactly why it had to be just like this. And unlike Adam, he was like, yeah, I don't need to understand for myself. I just need to know that you've called me to this, and that's why I'm here doing this. And think about the anxiety. (laughs) Think about the peace of mind that we would have if we lived like that. Like, I'm taking things that are way too big for me, that are way beyond my pay grade, and I'm trying to decide for myself what's true and right and good, when I could just be obeying (laughs) The Lord and his word and setting it all down and not having to have all of this stuff in my mind all the time. But there's another reason that Jesus quoted this scripture. This is actually from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3, what he says here in verse 4. God has led Jesus into this 40 day fast and testing and the significance of that is it corresponds with Israel, the people of God, and they're 40 years in the wilderness of testing as they were leaving Egypt, coming into the promised land. And God refers to Israel as, in Exodus 4, as his firstborn son. So we had Adam, God's son, who failed. And we had Israel, God's son, who failed. And here's Jesus, a recapitulation of both of these moments, And let me read um, Deuteronomy 8, 3 in the context that it was written. This is God speaking to his people as they're leaving the slavery of Egypt in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply. Remember what God calls us to is so that we can live, so we can have life, so that we can live and multiply, not so that you can be my slaves, so that you can have life and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. Because remember, pride was the fall. Pride is a gateway to death and destruction and decay. He has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you because that is the doorway to life, testing you to know what was in your heart. God knows what's in their hearts. He's testing them so that they can know what's in their hearts and that they can grow in faith and be able to have life with him. Whether you would keep his commands or not. And here, here's the verse that Jesus quotes. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. He met your needs in ways that you could not meet your own needs that were foreign to you, that only he was able to meet your needs, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so here's this passage about Israel being tested in the wilderness, Like Was Jesus tested? Why did he need to be tested? If he was perfect, if he was sinless, why did he need to be tested? Well, Hebrews 2.10 says it was fitting that God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. talks about Jesus being made perfect. Well, I thought he already was perfect. Jesus was sinless, yes. But he had to grow in his faith and maturity just like we do because he was fully human. He was fully human and fully god And in his humanity, he grew from a a baby just like we do, and he was a child, and he grew in his maturity and his ability to know the Lord, and he had to be strengthened and prepared just like God's people were strengthened in the wilderness except he did not fail. He had to be strengthened for his work as our great high priest as he was going to the cross, and he had to be equipped as our shepherd. In order to be his shepherd, you've got to know what it's like to be a sheep. And Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. If he was only God, he would not know what it's like to live life here. He would not know how hard it is to live here and to be single or to not have enough money to have the things that you want. He would not know any of that. He would not know how hard it is to withstand sin if he were not also fully man. But we do have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What Adam failed to do as God's son, what Israel failed to do as God's son, Jesus did. Romans 5, 18 says this, For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Because you see, the exodus is a picture, it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus has come to do on a cosmic scale. We are all slaves to sin. Just like Israel was slaves to Egypt, and then God led them out miraculously, led them out in a way that nobody could have expected, and led them through the wilderness into the promised land, He's saying, this is what I'm doing through the whole story of human history through my son, Jesus. He is leading us. He has broken the power of sin. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death in a way that nobody could ever imagine. By him going to the cross on our behalf, the one who was sinless now can be the perfect sacrifice. He's not only the great high priest. He's also the spotless lamb. He offered himself up to take the punishment of our sin, the wrath of God for our sin into himself so that we could have life and be free. And he is walking us as our shepherd, as our Lord, out of slavery in this wilderness that is life now between his comings into the promised land, which is eternity and life with him forever, where sin will be no more. And so here we are in the wilderness with our jesus who we can trust because he knows he knows what it's like to be in the wilderness to a infinite greater depth than we ever will not making light of anything that any of us is going through and i know what some of us are going through right now but it is not even touch the edge of what he experienced in his humanity all of the loneliness, all of the, the separation from the father on the cross, the one who is sinless and all he knew was perfect relationship with the father is completely severed from him and is filled with the blackness of all the sin of the world. We will never know that. And he is glad for that. He took that so that we would never have to take that. And he was fully Human. Fully human and fully God. Moses could not lead Israel to a new humanity because Egypt was not their greatest problem. Jesus is the only one who can lead us to a new humanity because he's the only one who can get underneath the skin into our souls and rid us of the tyranny of sin that is our slave driver. So now, we are no longer slaves but there is a, it's the beginning of a new humanity. As Jacques Cousteau talked about being a man fish, is being in this whole new world in a new way that was not possible before someone unlocked the door and let us in. Jesus is the alpha because he's the firstborn of this new humanity, but he's also the omega because he is the end result. He is the end that we, we all are going toward him, the perfect image of God. We are all being made into the likeness of Christ, who is the, like, the, I don't even have a word, the epicenter, the ultimate of humanity. And we are all being made like him because of what he has done for us. And when we get this, when we get what it is to live by faith in the God who would do this for us, then all the other temptations lose so much of their power. Just briefly, these next two temptations. The second temptation, Satan is twisting God's words to try to obligate God to come through for us on our terms. And that actually makes us God. And Jesus was like, yeah, no. And he didn't need that because he had God the Father. The third temptation, it's like Satan just Gave up and is like, you know, forget God. Just how about know God and I'll give you everything else. And Jesus is like, God is everything. And it wasn't that he was just studied and had the right answers to this test. It was that he knew relationally. He knew that God was everything because he had experienced the love of the father. And he's like, this just pales. Like all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory pales in comparison to knowing God and having life with him and in him. And then in verse 11, we just get this beautiful picture. Uh, We don't know exactly what this looked like, but when he withstood the test and told Satan to be gone, it says that angels came and ministered to him. Just like the way the Lord brought manna in the wilderness for the people leaving Egypt. God provided for Jesus in ways that he could not have provided for himself. And he does that for us too. He will meet our needs in ways that we didn't even know were possible when we walk by faith and we allow him to be God. And then we have verse 17. From this time on, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent. That word repent means turn back. Turn back to God. Turn back to right relationship with God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn back to God because now you can. Apart from the the work of the Holy Spirit, no one can turn back to God. We are all enslaved to the power of the enemy. But through the Holy Spirit, we can. Because he has broken the power of the enemy. And so, if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And you do have the power to turn back to God. And that is the call on our lives from now until the day that Jesus returns or that we die and we meet him, is that we are constantly turning back to God to depend on him and not ourselves. And if you're in this room and you do not know God, you also have the power to turn back because he is here and he is speaking to you. And he is saying, everyone who comes to me, everyone who calls on me, I will not turn away. So in that invitation, the power of the Holy Spirit is working in you to say, turn. Turn back to him even for the first time. This is possible now through the finished work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit For every one of us in this room, who else, if you don't, who else can lead you to a new humanity? You tell me. I'm serious. Like, let's go have coffee, and you tell me. Think about all the people that you've turned to for a new, better version of yourself. And you tell me whether they can deliver on the promises that they've made to you, whether implicit or explicit. And now, receive that invitation. Turn to Jesus, the only one who can deliver on the promise to lead you into a new humanity. Because the kingdom is here. Jesus is here. Redemption is here. Jacques Cousteau's quote, at night I had often had visions of flying and now I flew without wings because a new humanity is here through Jesus. Father, come and make that true in all of our hearts. Come and do your mighty work. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for being perfectly obedient because we could not. We are completely hopeless without you. You are our only hope and you have finished the work. You have been obedient from the heart to the Father all of your days in perfection. You have endured the deepest darkness so that we could have life. So thank you. Help us access you in your power. Help us to see you. Help our hearts glow with a warmth for you and a love for you that we have not known before. And I ask this in your name. Amen.